Would you continue in worship with me as I read the scripture for today? It's in John 6, 8 through 14. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Emily. Good morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter six and that text that Emily just read for us. While you're doing that, let me just say welcome as well. I'm Rob Sweet. Good to be with you. If you're new to fellowship, we are one church in two congregations here at Franklin and then at Brentwood. And we have two primary teaching pastors, myself and Lloyd Shadrach. The way it works is while I'm here, he is there and vice versa. So Uh, We're in the same series together, the same teaching together, and we really are one church together. Last weekend, my wife Jody was away on a personal retreat, and so what that meant for me was a little extra responsibility than I would normally have while she was away. And I quickly remembered or, you know, rediscovered how often I have to source food. (laughs) What are we going to eat, Dad? That was a question that kept being asked, and, you know, it was asked more than once every single day. <laughs> Imagine that. What are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? And I have to figure all that out. And, you know, in our day and age, we've got so many options. Do I cook? Do we go out? Do I order food in? Do we pick up? I mean, there's so many things to do. And it got me sort of thinking, I wonder how much food the average person will eat in their lifetime because it, we have to eat all the time, it feels like. And so I looked that up, and it turns out that you and I will consume somewhere around 38 tons of food in the course of our life. That is eight elephants. (laughs) This food costs a lot of money, as you can imagine. I was really feeling that last weekend because let's just say I wasn't doing a lot of cooking. (laughs) And so I looked that up, and it turns out in in the state of Tennessee, the the average person will spend $449,000 on food for themselves or each person. You know, you multiply that by how many people are in your family over the course of a lifetime. With inflation, I'm assuming that's now up to half a million dollars. Let's just call it that. Half a million dollars will be spent on food per person. You know, your mind starts going crazy when you think about how much energy, effort, and money is spent on food. Food's a really big deal. Jesus knew that. He was walking on this earth for 30 plus years, he had to eat just like you and I do. He knew what it was like to be hungry, more so than you and I did. He grew up poor. I doubt many of us in this room have ever thought, I'm not sure where my next meal is coming from. Maybe some of you had. Jesus would have had those days. And yet, there is so much we can learn from food. And so the chapter that we are in right now, John chapter six, is really mostly about food. 
It starts with the multiplication of the bread and the fish, the passage you just read, and then it's gonna have a brief interlude where Jesus will walk on the water. We'll get to that next week. But then the whole rest of the chapter is all about bread. It's all about food. In that culture, bread and food were synonymous. You said, do you have enough bread to eat? For us, do you have enough food to eat? That's what they ate back then for the most part. That was their sustenance, was bread. And so all throughout this chapter, which will start at one of the high points of Jesus' ministry and end at one of the lowest points of Jesus' ministry, all throughout, he's teaching his disciples lessons about following him through food. And so go ahead and now open your Bibles to chapter six, verse one. I'm gonna launch in right there. We'll put it on the screen as well so we can look at it together. The first four verses read, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Okay, so this is the setup for the miracle. Now we get two contextual uh, pieces of information. The first is the place, the where, and the second is the time or the when. Let's talk about the place. It was the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. I'll put a map on the screen so you can kind of see. Uh, Tiberias is the largest town or largest city on the Sea of Galilee, which is why it's sometimes referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. But mostly it's a, a fairly rural area. All up in this area would have been where Jesus did most of his miracles. This red marker is at Capernaum, which was his home base. This miracle we know was done on the other side of the sea. And usually in scripture, when it talks about the other side of the sea, it's referring to the east side. So probably somewhere over here, there's mountains region, mountainous region over here, probably where Jesus refers to him going up on top of the mountain. It was a desolate area. There wasn't a lot going on on that side of the sea. So right about where I put that star is likely where we think the feeding of the 5,000 would have taken place. Now, Lest you think that the Sea of Galilee is something like the Atlantic Ocean or something like that, let me give you a little bit of a scale. The Sea of Galilee is actually a large lake. It's 13 miles from northern end to southern end. It is eight miles from the western tip to the eastern tip. So if you were to, to place that in, in Franklin and Brentwood, Tennessee, let me, let me show you what we'd be talking about. Uh, the southern tip here would be 840. Okay, think about that. Uh, you've got uh, I-65 is the Jordan River, which kind of runs straight down through here. So there's Interstate 65. This top tip up here would be Concord Road, which puts Capernaum where our Brentwood campus is. So there's Concord. It gives you just a little bit of idea of scope. You and I, let's say, let's make 96 right there. You and I are sitting right here, kind of close to Tiberias is where we are on the sea. So you kind of get an idea from 840 to Concord Road. I mean, we can just, what, that's like a seven minute, eight minute interstate drive. It's not very large. And so Jesus likely from Capernaum would have set off, would have gone to this part of the sea, you know, just a couple hours, few hours in the boat that would have gotten over here. And this is where the miracle would have taken place. Okay, so that's the place. Let's go back and let's look at the time. We know it was the Passover time. Now it wouldn't have been Passover day itself or Passover weekend or Passover week because he would have spent that in Jerusalem, but it would have been around the season of Passover. So for us, we say it was Christmas time. And that doesn't mean it was the 25th. It means it was sometime probably between Thanksgiving and Christmas day. So they, the same kind of idea, they have Passover time. We'll talk later about why it was so significant that this was the time of Passover. But for now, 
I want you just to keep in mind, Passover was the most nationalistic holiday on the Jewish calendar. It was equivalent to our 4th of July because they're remembering their independence, their deliverance from the hands of the Egyptians. Uh, now imagine if, if you and I were, were celebrating 4th of July in the context of our nation being occupied by an enemy. Can you imagine what that would be like every year? Fourth of July comes around and you're just like, we're celebrating freedom, but we don't have freedom. That's how they would have felt. And so every time Passover came around, there was this nationalistic fervor that would emerge. And the people would say, maybe this is the year that Messiah will finally emerge. Keep that in mind. It matters. John's going out of his way to tell us the time of year when this was happening and what might have been on the minds and the hearts of the people. Okay, so that's the setup. That's the context of the miracle. Let's see what happens next. Verse five. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Don't miss, John is going out of his way to say he himself knew what he would do. So why did Jesus ask the question? Well, John says it's to test him. Don't think about like a bad test, like, you know, you and I have negative connotations of tests. A good teacher uses tests to develop, uses exams to develop. I, I think maybe a, a better word in, in our modern vernacular might have been it is a lab. It's a lab test. It's like, let's practice what we've been learning, Jesus is saying. So what he's doing in this question, he's inviting the disciples into the action. He could have done the miracle all by himself. Instead, he teases them and he says, uh, where are we gonna buy so much bread? And Philip, he probably asked Philip because Philip's from Bethsaida, which is the closest town likely to where they were. Philip said, 200 denarii worth of bread's not enough. There, that's eight months of wages for an average laborer in that day. And so even if they had that much, I don't know if they did or not, Philip's saying, that's not enough money to even buy, and, and I doubt there'd even be enough bread in that area surrounding to answer. So the, the answer to Jesus' question here is there's no way. Where, Jesus says, where are we to buy bread for the people to eat? And, and there's no way. It's impossible. Oftentimes, the work of Jesus begins with the recognition of our own limitations. We're reminded, I don't have the resources to do this. That's oftentimes when the work of Jesus begins. I think that's what Jesus was doing with his question. He's inviting his disciples into the work and that starts with realizing they don't have the resources needed to get the job done. Let's see what happens next. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Oftentimes when uh, scripture uses the word men or man, it's the, the, the word that's just used for people in general. However, this is the particular word for men. There were 5,000 men, there were males. 
5,000 males, there would have been women and children in addition to that. In fact, we know explicitly from Matthew's account of the same miracle, Matthew 14, 21, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So why are only the men counted? Well, in their culture, that's how you did census, that you count the male heads of the household. And so it was roughly 5,000 households, 5,000 men that we're representing here. And there would have been probably significantly more than that. Uh, let me give you a scope, maybe. Let's just imagine there were twice as many people as there were men that could be conservative. It's hard to really know. Let's just uh, put it at 10,000. Uh, if you've ever been to First Horizon Park where the Nashville Sounds play, that stadium holds 10,000 people. So if you've ever been there, you can imagine that. Now think about feeding that many people. You, know, you go to that stadium and like for days they've had truckloads of food and supplies come in to feed the people in the stadium. There's a small army of vendors and people working in the little places where you buy the food and cooking the food and delivering the food. It, it, that's the scope of what we're talking about here. And in light of that, five little loaves and two fish is laughable. Andrew knows this, but here's what I love about Andrew. He brings it to Jesus anyway. He's like, I, I don't know what you can do with this, Jesus, but uh, we have this boy and he has a little lunch here. And I love what um, Tom Wright wrote about this. He said, so often in life, we ourselves have no idea what to do, but the starting point is always to bring what is there to the attention of Jesus. You can never tell what he's going to do with it. So when you don't know what to do, Bring whatever's there to Jesus's attention and see what he does. There's a little detail we get only in John's account of this miracle, which by the way, the only miracle that's in all four of the gospels is this one. Well, the resurrection, but, but this one in the resurrection. Uh, barley, the bread was barley. Now, why does that matter? Barley was the bread of the poor people. Poor people had barley loaves. This was a reminder that these were hungry, poor people. These were people who knew what it would have been like to go to bed at night not having enough food. Not because you're choosing to fast, because you don't have enough food. These were people who would have known that. Jesus himself knew that feeling. He grew up very, very poor. Now, in our day and time, in addition to having so many choices of what to eat, we just rarely, if ever, have to think about whether you're going to have enough to eat. There's not been a day in my life that I went to bed hungry because I, there wasn't enough for my family. Some of you may know what that's like. I've never experienced that. Now, I've intentionally fasted, but, but that's a whole different thing. Jesus would have known what it was like to be hungry. He would have known what it was like to fast. And he, remember, he fasted once for 40 days. Your body goes through significant trauma when you deny it of food. So Jesus knows what happens to the human body when it doesn't have enough food in ways that you and I, most of us, don't. If you're with us in the fall, when we were in uh, John chapter four, Ryan and Jazeera Boyette came. Uh, they're a couple that have been worshiping with us in our body for the last four years while they've been in school. Jazeera's from Sudan, Ryan's from Florida. He went to Sudan with mission work. He met Jazeera, they got married in Sudan. 
If you were here, it was a funny line from the video. There were like 8,000 people came to the wedding because they'd never seen a white man before. You know, it's one of those crazy stories. It's true. They're in our body. And Jazeera told us the story of what it was like growing up in Sudan when the war broke out. Her dad was separated from the family because he happened to be on the other side of the war zone on a trip when the war started. And for over a year, they did not see their father. They thought he was dead. And so the mother had to provide for them and they were starving. There was no food around. Jazeera was around 12. She had a younger sister who was starving to death. They were both starving to death, but her younger sister's belly started to swell. Her mom left them. Only thing she could do to go find food. She was gone for days. And Jazeera didn't know if she was gonna come back. And her mom finally returned and she was holding a little food. And when Jazeera told the story, I remember she, she did this. Like she, she was remembering that little bit of food that her mom was able to find. And she said, it was enough to save my sister. That's the kind of context that Jesus was working in. You know, the, every year there were people in these villages around here who died because they didn't have enough. And so Jesus sees them coming. He's moved because he knows they're hungry. And then watch what he does. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. Sometimes uh, it takes several English words to translate one Greek word. That's kind of how that language works. And that's the case here. When he had given thanks is one Greek word. Eucharistesas. Do you recognize an, a word in there? Yes. Eucharist is what some denominations call the Lord's Supper. We call it communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, but some denominations, maybe you, you grew up in a denomination or a tradition that calls it the Eucharist. Eucharist, uh, Greek word, it, it's composed of a, a prefix, E-U, which means good, and then look at the next word, charis. Anyone knows what charis means? Grace. Yeah, you, you knew it. You were just afraid you'd be wrong, but you were right. Good grace, good grace. This is thanksgiving. So Eucharist means thanksgiving. It's recognizing that, that what you're thankful for, what you're receiving is undeserved favor. That's what grace means. It's a good grace. And so Jesus says grace over the meal. That's where that phrase comes from. And when he thanks God for the food, when he had given thanks, which is Eucharistesas, it would have sounded probably just like this, but in Hebrew, blessed are you, Lord, our God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. That was the simple sentence they would say every time they ate. Blessed are you, Lord God, king of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Brings forth bread from the earth. Now, you might be thinking, hold on a minute, bread doesn't come from the earth. The ingredients do, but then we have to make the ingredients. I want you to think about it this way. The only thing we do when we bake bread or bake any meal is we're just rearranging the raw ingredients that God put on this planet. And we're using the intelligence and the creativity only because he put that in us, it all comes from God. So surely everything we eat 
does ultimately come from God. He brings forth bread. He brings forth food from the earth. Think about that when you sit down to eat lunch after. It's a good grace. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus did more than just feed hungry people. He put on display the abundant generosity of God. When he had given thanks, he distributed. In that little simple phrase, a miraculous thing happened. He took something small and made it abundant as much as they wanted. Let's see what happens after. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. In the words of Rudolf Boltmann, after all had been satisfied, there is more left over than there was at the beginning. The lesson for the disciples could not have been more on the nose. 12 disciples, 12 baskets. So while they were serving alongside Jesus, distributing the food, Jesus also had in mind their own hunger, their own needs. He did not forget about them. 12 baskets. When the people saw the sign, verse 14, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. If you've been tracking with us through John's gospel, this word should stand out to you. Uh, the word sign there is significant. It's, it's miracles that Jesus did in the gospel of John, but they're not just miracles. They're special miracles that, that point to his identity as the son of God. There are seven signs in John. The first was turning water into wine. The second was healing the official's son, you know, with his word by, by, from a distance. The third was healing a paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda. And this is the fourth. Miraculously providing food to thousands of hungry people. Now this sign, uh, I want you to remember this Passover. And this is why that little detail about it being Passover is so important. Every year at Passover, they're retelling the story of the Exodus. Now, interact with me around this. Who did God use to lead the people out of Egypt? Yes, good, Moses. Now, when you and I hear Moses, we think, oh yeah, yeah, there, there's Moses and Abraham and Noah and David and you know, Solomon and um, Samson. You know, we kind of just group all these Old Testament heroes sort of together. For the Hebrew perspective, Moses is unique. You cannot overstate the importance of Moses. Moses was the intercessor between God and the people. Moses is the one that God would speak to and then Moses would speak to the people. Moses is the one through whom God delivered them. God did the miracles, but the miracles came through Moses. All those plagues, you know, it was like Moses lifting up his staff, the parting of the Red Sea was Moses' staff. It was God doing things through Moses. But before Moses died, God said, I'm going to give another one like you to the people. And so in Deuteronomy 6.15, Moses says, 
the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Listen to him. And so all these years, 1,300 years since, they've been saying, who is going to be the prophet like Moses? Who's going to be the one through whom God will do the miraculous deliverance? Who's gonna be the intercessor between us and God? And so put two and two together, 1,300 years after, the Israelites are once again in a wilderness, they're under oppression. And in this case, they're in a particular wilderness. You know, they're in a very rural area apart from a lot of development. And, and God is giving them bread where there was no bread. What does that sound like? Manna from heaven. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, it's finally happening. When was the last time God miraculously provided bread when there was no bread? This is surely the prophet of whom was promised. And then the story takes an unexpected turn. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Maybe surprising. Didn't Jesus want them to know who he was? Not yet. It wasn't time for the political rescue. Jesus sees. He, he perceived the hunger. He also perceives the state of their hearts. Jesus knew how quickly the human heart wants to use God for its own ambitions. So he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knows this about mankind, that he can't be our king until he first cleanses our hearts. That there's another work that yet had to be done before he could physically rescue them, militarily, politically, all these kinds of things. The work that had to be done is he had to cleanse their hearts. He had to reconcile them to the Father. He had to die for their sins and then be resurrected. And that's the point of his first coming. But they don't know all that. They just see the Messiah and they were seeing the Messiah and they're like, he's gonna be king. And that was right, but it was the wrong timing. Jesus knows he cannot be our king until he first cleanses our hearts. He also knew that was coming at the next Passover. I want to spend whatever time we have left to apply the feeding of the 5,000 to our lives. There's so many lessons we could take out of this, right? I want to focus on two. And uh, big picture, I'll say it this way. I think we can learn from this miracle two things, what it looks like for the bread to come to you and what it looks like for the bread to come through you. One is the perspective of the crowd. The other is the perspective of the disciples. Let's start with the disciples. Lesson number one is this. Jesus can do anything he wants, but he chooses to work through us. John goes out of his way to say, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he asked the question anyway, where are we gonna find bread? Where are we going to get this bread? He put the disciples at the very end of their limitations and he got their wheels turning and you know what happened 
Andrew said, there's not much, but here's something. And Jesus said, that's more than enough. This is how Jesus works. He takes something so small that it's laughable and he works through it. Look, Jesus could have done the manna thing again. He could have said, check this out. It's about to rain bread, baby. Instead, he said, I want you to be a part of this with me. Where are we gonna get bread? And then they, they just got as much as they could get. And he's like, all right, good enough. Let's go. Start handing this stuff out. Connect this to you and me. Isn't it laughable that God could use anything that you or I have to do heart transformation in another human? Isn't that incredible that he could use our little bitty resources to do work that could touch the end of the globe? Isn't that silly? Surely he has a different plan than to use little us. Nope. This is exactly the way he planned it. He can do anything he wants. He chooses to work through us, through you and me. So we are the disciples of Jesus in our time and place. Here's the question I want you to ask yourself this morning. What has Jesus placed in your hands? It, it may not be much. In fact, I think he'd say the smaller, the better. Is it a little time, a little money, a piece of an idea, a dream? Maybe a relationship with someone you know who's needy? Like, what has he put in your hand? And here's what I'd say. Open your hands. Bring it to his attention. So well, I, it's not much, but I've got this. You never know what he'll do with it. That's lesson number one. The disciples learned that lesson. Let's talk about a lesson that they all learned that day. Jesus is the bread. I like what Mandy said earlier. She said something to the effect of miracles happen and they're wonderful, but they're not as good as the presence of God. And, and that, that's what we're gonna find in this chapter. Jesus is going to say, I am the bread of life. That's gonna be in verse 35. And we're gonna get there. But here's where I wanna take you just this morning, just to start your wheels turning on this. Maybe physical hunger is a tool God uses throughout the course of our lives to show us we're hungry for more than food. So when you come out of your mother's womb, you're hungry, you cry, you get fed, you're satisfied, then you feel hungry again, you cry, you're fed, you're satisfied. Eventually you stop crying when you're hungry, hopefully. <laughs> But you feel the hunger, you eat, you're satisfied, then you get hungry again. You eat, you're satisfied, only to get hungry again. It happens throughout the course of your entire life over and over and over again until you die. As long as you're alive, you're gonna get hungry. Your hunger may just be pointing you to something greater, greater than food. Or the way Jesus would say it is, it may be pointing you to true food, real food. Now, when Jesus says later, I'm the bread, I'm the bread of life, unless you're willing to eat my flesh, you have no part in me, people are gonna get wigged out. They're, they're gonna say, we don't know what to do with this guy. We liked him when he was feeding us bread and fish, but now he's saying really hard things and they're gonna leave. The 
Crowds are going to leave. In this chapter, Jesus is going to say a lot of hard things that people don't understand or like, and at the center of all his words is this message. You are more hungry than you know, and I am your food. Eat my flesh, Jesus is going to say. Drink my blood. And you and I are so quick just to go like, oh yeah, yeah, he's pointing to his death and his resurrection. And you know, communion points to that. And I have believed in Jesus, so I have drank his blood and I have eaten his flesh. And you would be right, but I'm telling you guys, I think there's more for us over the next four weeks of contemplating this than just that. I think he'd want us to say, what does it mean for me every day to eat him? I wanna encourage you over the next four weeks, be thinking about what it means for Jesus to be your food. I wanna invite the band to come back out and the ushers to come forward. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This is our Eucharist, so to speak, our Thanksgiving, our good grace. And uh, we're doing something a little different today. When you came in the doors, you might've noticed, well, where's the communion elements? They're normally right out the, through those doors. You pick on one up on the way in. And this morning they weren't there. And you might've thought maybe we're not doing communion. We are, but I, I've put it down here in, in front. In fact, uh, ushers, why don't y'all go ahead and come around this table and go ahead and pick up a, a basket each and just be ready. I'll release you in just a minute. Here's why we wanted to do it this way. A visual reminder that what you're about to receive all comes from the same source. Jesus is the bread. When he sat down the next Passover with his disciples and had their last supper together, uh, he was reenacting a liturgy that these young men, these disciples would have grown up doing, the, the Passover supper or the Passover seder. They would have had this liturgy memorized. They, they knew all the things, all the blessings, how everything flows, the story. They, they could have all you know, done it in their sleep. But Jesus got to that meal and he gave it a whole new meaning for them. He took the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. I wonder if their minds went back to what he had said, I'm the bread of life, eat my flesh. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood spilled for you. I wonder if they went back to drink my blood. But they didn't understand it all. They didn't have all the pieces yet because he was about to die. He was gonna be arrested that very night. And then here's what I realized this week for the first time, that it says in the previous Passover, when he multiplied the loaves, it says he thanked God. He, he, he blessed God for the food. And it says at the Last Supper, after giving thanks, same word, likely the same blessing. And before these ushers pass out the elements, I want to reread to you that blessing. And this time I want you to hear it with fresh ears because I want you to think about these words from the context of Jesus's death and resurrection. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection for you, we want you to receive the elements this morning. And so ushers, you may begin passing those out. If you need a gluten-free, just raise your hand and we'll make sure that gets to you. But let's just take a minute or two now to reflect as these elements are being passed out. <laughs> 